reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Well, if you're self-quarantining and uh, sitting around looking for a new podcast and you found this one, thank you. Hopefully you'll find a voice, not only of freedom, of patriotism, but a new voice that will take you to ideas, to issues that you haven't thought about before. And uh, typically, this uh, podcast uh, arose a couple years ago as I thought, well, let's let me have a conversation with folks about how an American Muslim who's dedicated his life to defeating radical Islam, to defeating the root causes, can find areas that we should be focusing on. Too often, the media, academics, politics, politicians, Interfaith organizations just miss the boat completely. We're focused on one crisis after the next, and we never deal with the root causes as if we have this great amnesia. So I thought in a podcast, it's a platform to bring you some of the ideas that we miss. Because too often, we ignore the fact that for the most part, a quarter of the world's population that's Muslim has a Muslim problem, which is political Islam, radical Islam that needs a Muslim solution. So at this podcast, we look for solutions for that. But I also, as I tell you about all the things that I do, address other things that relate to politics, that relate to uh, sort of that antagonism of, of trying to avoid partisanship and yet looking at ideas rationally. We've discussed medical ethics. We've discussed, uh, you know, not only do I run the foundation of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, but I'm a physician in private practice and primary care been over 20 years here in Phoenix, served the Navy 11 years as a Navy doc in the Medical Corps, went to Somalia, was a physician in Congress, and try to bring you some of that perspective. And this week, as our country becomes deeper and deeper paralyzed and yet moving forward as we protect ourselves against the threat of COVID-19, uh, I, I think I'd like to step back and and uh, bring you a little perspective as a primary care doc, as somebody who's been uh, seeing patients in primary care, being the quarterback of their care now for over 25 years since I finished my residency and chief residency at Bethesda Naval Hospital in 1996. And uh, also chaired uh, a disaster task force, preparedness task force here in Arizona, been head of the medical association here, so I do have a little experience in population care and uh, some of these issues. I do think our country now is getting a quick clinic, if you will, a rapid education in infectious diseases and the spread of, uh, of viruses and the spread of infectious disease. And exactly how viruses multiply, what is herd immunity, how vaccines work, is there a treatment for any virus, let alone a novel virus? And uh, I'm going to, you know, I think this program doesn't have to be just focused on radical Islam, political Islam. I think it's a major reason, impetus for its existence, uh, but uh, we're each 
colleagues, partners, neighbors in the states and the country that we live in here in America and globally, and we're realizing with viruses like this that uh, it's all hands on deck, as we said in the Navy. It is important that we pool our resources. The president declared a national emergency this week, which allowed collaboration, which allowed pooling of resources, relieved some of the regulatory limitations that don't allow some of the more efficient cares. And I want to walk through in today's program some of the lessons that we should learn, that we can learn from places like Italy, review, uh, I think, some of the uh, simple things that if you understand, it'll take away some of the pandemonium that might exist and people that uh, think uh, or, or are fearful of what it takes to be infected, contaminated, and transmit the virus. We don't know the answers to a lot of these things, and anyone who tells you for sure they know is uh, being a little overconfident or, or just simply making things up. But at the end of the day, uh, there are some classic processes that this virus is exhibiting that seem to parallel our experience with other viruses. First of all, as we know, this virus originated in Wuhan, China. It may have uh, obviously leapt uh, from an animal and then began its infection. Initially, they thought patient zero was in late December. Now there's even some question of whether it was late November. Now, one of the reasons we give vaccines, and every year we get a new flu vaccine because influenza mutates. All viruses mutate, but they mutate during their seasons. Viruses have a season because they're able to survive in respiratory droplets, survive on the skin, survive on plastic, for example, 24 to 48 hours, survive on metal for three or four hours. With weather, when, when it becomes hot over 70, 80 degrees into the summer, they burn away. They're unable to exist at that temperature external to the human body, external to an organism. That's why there's a lot of confidence that this virus will burn away around June, July, possibly. Now, herd immunity, what is that? The goal isn't to put into place herd immunity. The, the, the Neanderthals in Iran literally have been giving sermons this week telling people to hug and, and uh, uh, transmit the virus and that if they die, it is God's will. This is what these... Neanderthal psychopaths of the Supreme Council of Iran are telling folks they're creating their own herd immunity and that people will then become immune and once it makes its way through the population they'll become a stronger nation. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. This is what the Iranian regime is telling many of its people. And then you wonder why 10-15% of their parliament is down with the virus. They are number three on the list of countries far as deaths are concerned herd immunity is a goal but it should never be a process by which we push people to do it we'll talk about social isolation in a second but and again i'm not giving you all this information as an infectious disease expert listen to the world expert probably one of the most brilliant people i've never known when i ever known when i was in bethesda over at nih i had Contact not only with Dr. Fauci, but with a lot of the experts at NIH, Institutes of Allergy and Immunology, and 
infectious diseases and CDC and others. These people know exactly they were at the forefront of creating cures and diagnoses and understanding HIV disease and Ebola and others. So they're working fast. Vaccines are already in development by multiple companies. We'll get to that in a second. But herd immunity is where if enough people can withstand the virus, it can't intercalate its way into a population like a gas flows into a room. And this is why social isolation is important, is that without vaccines, nobody has the immunity and they have to get sick. They have to harbor the virus in order to defeat it. Now, many people get away with not having the flu shot because if you get enough people vaccinated, and those numbers could are debatable, but if you get enough people vaccinated, not everybody has to have the vaccine. So those people who are against vaccines, the anti-vaxxers, if you will, they can have their conspiracy theories that they want and not take the vaccines, but they're really riding on the coattails of the 80-90% of the population up to that much. Sometimes it's down to 40-50% that do get the vaccines, that are vaccinated and provide protection so that virus doesn't ever come in contact with the people that don't have the vaccine, and some of them still do it. And even with the vaccine, whether it's flu or otherwise, you can still get the sickness because viruses mutate. Every year there's a predominant strain that comes through, but it mutates. We're seeing the coronavirus, one of the odd things about it as a novel, as a novel virus, is that its mutation rate seems to be pretty high. But maybe they say that about other viruses. Did they say that about SARS? I think they did in 2009 or so, or even earlier. The MERS virus was nine, I think. SARS was four or five, but bottom line is is we now have vaccines for the H1N1 virus for, for others, and we haven't seen, we've seen a significant flat curve of those infected. It's not spreading as much. It still exists. It's still on the planet. It still causes thousands of illnesses, tens, hundreds of thousands, and a certain number of deaths. But initially, it'll run rampant until, A, we vaccinate. What is a vaccine? You give people a protein that they then develop antibodies to so that when they get introduced with the actual active vaccine, actual virus, I'm sorry, they have the antibodies to ward that off before the virus infects all of their target cells. And it appears that the target for this virus is mostly respiratory. They get a pattern of pneumonitis, which is inflammation of the lung tissue with a spotty sort of patchy inflammatory pneumonia, inflammatory infection of the lung tissue in both lungs. And if they're older, it'll run more rampant because their immune system is weaker. And that's why most of the deaths are in older patients, people with chronic disease, liver disease, emphysema, diabetes, heart disease, etc. So how do you get herd immunity if there's no vaccines? You could be a bunch of fascist tyrants like Iran and tell people to spread it and get it and end up killing off a certain number of your population, which is only what satanic minds would do. In the West, 
We're aggressively addressing this through social isolation to flatten that curve. What's the flattening of the curve? The flattening of the curve is there is going to be a certain penetration of the virus globally in transmission. But if we're able to control it, understand it, and get tests out so that people can know whether they're infected or not, then we can know the clinical progression of the disease once people get the virus. And there's a doubling time that most viruses have when they initially present, and this one's been proven to be three to seven days, averaging five to six days. What's a doubling time? So if you have if you have 1,000 people infected on Monday, by the next Saturday to Monday, you would have 2,000 people infected, up to 4,000, 8,000. Globally now, there are 144,000 cases confirmed as of this weekend, 5,400 deaths, 5,900 people seriously ill, 70,000 recovered. So again, we're only talking half of those that were initially ill are totally recovered and fine. And these are the numbers that we know that are tested. Testing kits are now just being rolled out in an efficient manner and beginning to test people so that as the denominator increases, we'll understand better what the lethality, what the what the risk of the infection actually is. It does appear that the contagiousness, how quickly this is transferred from person to person, appears to be higher than anything we've seen before in common viral community illnesses. I'm not talking like Ebola, which is the most risky, but I'm talking comparing to flu, cold viruses, etc. And again, this is similar to a cold virus, and we know the cold gets transmitted pretty quickly, but it's just sort of an upper respiratory infection, rarely causing pneumonia like this. And the vast majority of these illnesses, the virus goes in, causes respiratory inflammation, and it sort of runs its course. You have initial fevers for a few days. And as most people are telling us from the Seattle experience, Boston experience, and other clusters of of infections we're finding here in America already, that within typical five to seven days, it will mostly resolve and definitely resolve by 10 to 14 days. And let me just end this conversation on herd immunity by telling you that initially what happens is as that doubling time increases, right now in the United States, we're up to over 2,200 cases. It'll get to 4,400, 8,800 and on. And it seems to peak, if you look at the experiences in other countries as the spread from China on, it seems to flatten. Now, this is all going to be dependent on, obviously, in China, they did things that are draconian. God knows what the reality is. Every piece of information from that country initially was fabricated and continues to be massaged. And and God knows exactly what they're doing internally, from exterminations to camps to anything's possible by that uh, fascistic regime. But at the end of the day, the doubling time shows that it seems to peak within 8 to 12 weeks. And that's why the the national 
attention that the United States is giving, while I think, and I have to tell you, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the exploitation of, of crises for political partisanship. Criticism is appropriate where necessary, but if the criticism is directed towards helping us get better better results and health and safety, I get it. That's absolutely correct. But if the criticism is directed simply to score political points and make the other side look bad, then I don't want you in my bunker. When we were fighting wars, this is a war. It's a war spread virally that attacks civilians, that attacks our communities. It's not something we can just send folks in uniform that signed up to fight wars to fight this. This is a virus that it's made its way into the that, that, that spreads through communities, through social cohesion, and wants to rip us up. That's what these organisms and attacks do. And yeah, I'm using some language like we, we've talked about with viral ideologies, with radical ideologies that spread into communities. But this is obviously far more rampant. But some of the same ideas apply. It's an inanimate, well, it's, it's, a, it's an organism that doesn't operate on reason, but once we understand it, until we understand it, we have to come together left and right, whatever it is, to defeat this. So the doubling time will continue, and we want to flatten that curve so that when you flatten it, the area under the curve of those impacted in that doubling time are human souls, human beings affected. So as it runs its course through into the summer and as we begin to understand it better and how to treat it, simply by preventing its transmission by things we do, we can save tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that would have been ill by just simply not changing behavior. And that's the importance of this, because we don't have a vaccine. Let's talk about vaccines slowly. number of companies from Roche to Janssen and Janssen, uh, Johnson & Johnson to Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and others are working in parallel on finding a vaccine. And what's amazing is that they've already come up with some vaccines that they're beginning to put into animal phase studies. So people say, well, why can't we just use it? You know, you see news stories. So-and-so company is three weeks away from having a vaccine. And actually, if they're putting it to animal studies, that means they have the vaccine. But remember, this is not something we can just experiment with and give to people that are sick. When you give a vaccine, you want to give it to the actually to healthy people so that they don't get it. And you don't want to give some new protein to healthy people unless it's gone through rigorous studies of its efficacy and of its safety. Not just efficacy, but efficacy and safety. So this is the problem. This is why it's going to take a year, if not more, to get a vaccine that's been proven to not only work efficacious against the disease, but to be safe. Yes, I think everything's being done to streamline the process. Everything's being done to streamline the process as the government creates these public-private partnerships to stimulate responses that 
try to save as many people as possible from the savages of this virus. But remember, there's a time process. And, okay, so I'm sure whatever process through the FDA, etc., that trials go through, you know, they go through four phases. Phase one, development, and then proposals for then allowing animal studies, and then human studies. And then once they're proven to be safe in humans, then they can be operationalized and initially put into test groups to make sure that once it gets into larger populations, it's safe, and then finally full-blown distribution globally, nationally and globally. So in the meantime, we're hoping in the summer this thing burns off, but we want to flatten the exponential increase, the doubling that'll happen over the next 8 to 12 weeks. So how do we know who has it? There's testing kits. Contrary to what you might see on some of the media where it say testing kits are not available, yeah, they're limited supply. It is hard to get them. That is, I will tell you, on the front lines in primary care, we're trying to figure out, yes, the, the main major labs have them. You can order the test through uh, whichever lab system you might use, from Sonora Quest to LabCorp, whatever it might be. But the question is, how do you get the sample from the patient? You know, they're, they're distributing kits in limited numbers to doctor's offices. And really, you should only be tested if not only if you have the symptoms, should not really test healthy people. You should really test people that have symptoms and exposure. So remember, symptoms are going to be anything from the could be upper respiratory infection, colds, flu, influenza, etc. Fevers over 101.5, over 102, respiratory congestion, etc., muscle aches, feel like you got run over by a truck. Treat it like you would regularly with Tylenol and Advil and rest and hydration and uh, um, mom's soup, as they say. But if you then possibly were at a major event, uh, the Boston issue, for example, there's a great story about what happened in Boston where a company had a convention, a gathering of, I don't know how many, 50 to 100 execs that had come in from all over the world and had also been traveling. This is actually a pharmaceutical company that had been doing some of the research involved in a lot of this stuff, but this wasn't what they were meeting about. It was one of their regular meetings. And all of a sudden they're finding, looking back at that meeting two, three weeks ago, a lot of the cases were tracked back to that meeting. So the proximity of those folks, the fact that they shared meals, drinks, other things in multiple meetings throughout created a cluster of cases that was then seen spread into the community in Boston. And thus you have a cluster there, just as the cluster we saw in Seattle. The other thing we're learning from Italy is that the hospitals themselves are becoming also mechanisms and clusters for the spread. Patient to patient, staff, assistants to, to others because of the contagiousness of the virus itself. And that's why the Surgeon General's admonition this week to hospitals to cancel elective surgeries is very important. Why bring healthy people that are just getting a knee replacement 
into a place where there's many people that might, might have that virus and we should then begin separation processes that's uh, what a lot of the folks in europe are saying uh, uh, if you look at states nations that have had high spread france why is it up to almost four thousand cases because they're finding that the mixture in the hospitals so it's not just about resources as we see the, the toilet paper flying off the shelves. Now, it's related to processes. Processes and how we deal with infections as they present. And we're becoming smarter and trying to flatten that curve. And that's what we mean by flattening the curve. We also need good information. We're learning that we're seeing the Chinese regime even, even came out with its one of its ministers, lead ministers, assistance to Chi, uh, who was trying to float the idea that the U.S. military produced this virus in the United States. Seriously? I mean, if there's anything that tells you how corrupt and evil the Chinese government is, it's this kind of information and the information coming out in their propaganda over the last few weeks, re rewriting what actually happened in December and January, rewriting the fact that uh, our folks only began ability to work on the vaccines that I told you are now going into other phases of trial because they were able to start mid-January. Now, imagine if they had been able to start mid-December. Imagine if the testing kits now that we're finally getting some that aren't taking 20, 30 hours that are going to be four to six hours to get a result quickly and rapidly in the millions as those test kits get provided. Imagine if we had had a head start back in December with actual sharing of information rather than suppression. And as we saw with the SARS epidemic that also originated in China, the whistleblowers, quote unquote, the whistleblowers were dead, disappeared. So information, we're developing our own, unfortunately, and doing that. The test kits are becoming more and more available. Yes, there is valid criticism that can be put on the administration for some of the delay in getting some of that out. But now with the huge stimulus bill that was put through, people are going to need some economic relief. Every Everybody still needs to pay their rent, their mortgage, their bills. Not many people have the luxury of being able to stock up and spend income that they don't have on toilet paper. And how can we protect the economy so that it'll bounce back? Most of the economic downturn, it's interesting listening to economists the past few days, they've reminded us that wherever there's been pandemics, even if it doesn't affect the country that you're living in, it often affects gross international GDP significantly. But then almost every time it recovers in the six to 12 months after. So we should be patient. And I'll leave the economists to tell you not to sell off as, as they've been saying. But lastly, be smart about it. Should you cancel everything? No. Keep your social distance, which is six feet. Do the elbow bump or just say hi. No need to shake hands. Wash your hands frequently. Don't touch your face. This stuff sits around. Wash it frequently. Use hand sanitizer. 
Wow, the TSA now is letting people take 12 ounces of hand sanitizer, not just the three-ounce bottles. Well, there you go. One viral ideology, one not ideology, one viral spread trumps another one. The old rules against the other virus. Political Islam that I spend most of my time on. But we're telling our patients, we're trying to do more telehealth so patients don't bring the viruses to the office. If they're fine, no shortness of breath. If they're short of breath and it's starting to spread beyond simply an upper respiratory infection but into the chest and otherwise, and they're getting short of breath, those patients should go to the emergency room. Because if it's starting to progress from a simple storm to a hurricane in your lungs, then you'll need support. And people are starting to do modeling do we have enough ICU beds, et cetera? I think, obviously, if the population spread is flattened, the percentages of infection that creates mortality, significant illness, do the math on, right now we're looking at a mortality rate of a little bit around, a little over 1% to 2%. And if you flatten, it might be less. So if the denominator is 100,000 people infected. Then you do the math. If it's 1% to 2%, that needs significant support. But if it's much, much more, then that would overwhelm our healthcare system. We'll see what those numbers really are. We can't just throw numbers out there, which is what I was doing. We'll see. And that's why we are where we are. But panic, yes. Wisdom's important. Panic is harmful. Being ahead of the game, being prepared is important, but anxiety is harmful. We're in this together, folks. And as a doctor, I will continue to go to my practice, take calls from my patients and help them through this. The systems are beginning to allow us to do more telephone call, medicine, etc., just because of this, this crisis, which we've been calling for for years. Because we can't do everything sometimes in the office and we should be paid for the time that we do through calls, etc. But now the president mentioned telehealth in his declaration of a national emergency. So I'm glad to see reason prevailing during a crisis where they tell docs because of safety of not allowing patients in. We will help cover you as you do things through the phone, through Skype or whatever it might be. Hopefully, the states will begin to provide small practices with protective gear, protective equipment. We're running out of masks. My practice is out of masks. Can't get it. We have gloves, other protective gear that we need, but we're going to run out of that too as supplies are limited. So the state should provide mechanisms in which we can get that into the front lines of medicine as the ERs are saying, don't send your patients to us unless they are critically ill. Well, okay. And how do we see them if we don't have the protective gear? So there are some realities. Uh, everybody wants to, from the political perspective, blame the president. But I think one of the other things to remember is that the heads of the CDC, NIH, Centers and Institutes of Infectious Disease are Pretty much the same folks that have been running it through Obama, Bush, Clinton, and before. Not too much turnover in those centers of excellence. 
as they build continued and reinforced public-private partnerships that they've had for some time. Yes, the president had some successes in some of his discussions in the past few weeks, but also some failures and lack of clarity and confusion that didn't help. Last press conference in the Rose Garden where Tony Fauci spoke alongside the president and others was, I think, extremely well done in which national emergency was declared and we finally got it right. But, you know, listen, you can't prepare for these things. It takes sometimes a few days to get it right. Every crisis, governmental or otherwise, in the first week or so, there's some faltering that happens as you you get your head around how you can respond appropriately, aggressively, but not cause pandemonium. All right. More to come from your faithful American Muslim patriot and your fellow community doc on the front lines, private primary care. Stay safe, folks. Stay healthy. And I'll always be here for you. Find me at Twitter, Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. I want to leave you with one thing before you turn me off. <laughs> we are one year from the Christchurch attacks in New Zealand. Attacks that left 51 dead. A radical supremacist that shot up two mosques a few miles apart in New Zealand. And we had a national conversation. I was actually in Australia at the time last year. And that's why it it reminds me I had gone to do speaking engagement in Melbourne and Sydney. A number through universities, community organizations, interfaith groups that invited me out for a 10-day trip. And then Christchurch happened on March 15th. I was there from March 10 to March 20, 2019. And a year later, I think it's important that we reflect. We can talk and hand ring about what caused it, what didn't cause it. That we're in a war of extremes between radical Islamists that hate the West, hate Jews, or or bigots, or militants, or theocrats against the West and our way of life. But every action sometimes leads to an equal and opposite reaction, and the fascists, white supremacists, sometimes will respond with equal venom. I don't want to get into comparison at this point. I've talked about the differences in the threat before. I see radical Islam as a major, major threat because of the institutions that control Muslim populations of governments, of theology, of of Islamic institutions. As you see this week, there's no better picture of where Islamic institutions are today than one of the leading Islamic clerics throwing a textbook of Harrison's internal medicine into the fire. What's an image on social media from a few days ago? Yes, the culture that produced Ibn Sina, Avicenna, and the canon of medicine back in the 10th, 11th century, a millennium later, now in the the throes of a coronavirus hurricane going through their state and through the world, relishes on the burning of Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. And that, what is that? That is the West's, one of the West's preeminent texts of my specialty, of primary care of internal medicine. 
and we realize that how backward and how ossified and and fossilized that with along with the theocrats not only are they misogynist and bigots against other faiths and against liberal thinkers within their faith but they are stuck in the 12th century and even before and actually the islam of the 10th century was far more advanced than they are now today yes there they were not secular yes there was supremacist mentality to the way they dealt with their sharia law they didn't understand liberty or freedom as well as we do now in the west but neither did the west it took the west 1789 years until they had a constitution and bill of rights and we've had this historical conversation before on this program but i think now as we look a year after christchurch and the attacks that happened in new zealand and how much they've come together, how much they've redefined what it means to be brother and sister. You'll see a lot of the New Zealand media talking about that this week. March 15th to 2020 is the one-year anniversary of that. And remember that, I think, if you want to do away with the hate that might come as a result of xenophobia against immigrants and other things that were some of the root causes of that attack, let the West see American Muslim patriots, New Zealand, New Zealander patriot Muslims fighting against the ideas, believing and taking ownership and contrition for the ideas that radicalize our community, and then they will realize we are their greatest assets. I think that's the number one thing. But meanwhile, it is important to fight hate, to dispel the anti-immigrant mentality Yes, we should vet folks that come in. Yes, we need to close our borders and open them only to people that want to join our way of life, not just because they want economic freedom, but because they want to join what it means to be a liberal democracy. Otherwise, they can go to societies that share their theocratic mentality if they are theocrats. But a year after Christchurch, just like the attack in Quebec against that mosque, we have to remember that the answer is never, the answer is never letting there be an equal and opposite reaction to the Islamists. We have to defeat the root causes, the ideas, the pre, pre-violent causes of political Islam, yes, But we rally in what we are. If we change who we are, we will declare surrender. The Chinese might be able to flatten their curve by destroying large communities and putting them in camps and whatever. The Iranians might be able to do things to to create herd immunity. But we will never do that in America. Yes, we might have to restrict some freedoms as we prevent the spread of a virus, but we will not change who we are, whether it's against a organism or against a ideology of a theopolitical group. This is Zudi Jasser. God bless you all. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week on Reform This.
Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.